If you've got a Bible, flip it open to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. So we're going to continue um, in the Acts series that we've been doing. Um, where, where we're at, so we're going to be at chapter 8, verse 1. Where we're at in the book of Acts, we're at, we're at a little bit of a, a turning point in the book. And so we're at the point where the gospel is starting to spread out much more broadly. So Acts begins in Jerusalem. That's where the first seven chapters primarily take place is in Jerusalem. And then once we get to chapter 8, it starts to spread out to Judea and then broader to Samaria. And then as chapters progress, we'll see to the ends of the earth. And this is what Jesus said would happen. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we got a slide for it. This is Jesus talking. He said, but you will receive power. He's talking to his apostles. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so this is happening. Like where we're at in the book of Acts, this is happening. You see this, this spreading out start to happen. So last week where we were at the second part of chapter 6, we had a big old chunk last week, right? I hope you did your homework. I won't make you raise your hand if you did it. Uh, but I hope you had a chance to read chapter 6 and, and all of chapter 7 um, together. So we said those, those chapters there were more Stephen chapters, right? And this is a good way to remember the flow of the book of Acts as well. Chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, first part of chapter 6. You know, they, they call these seven men of good repute. The next part through chapter 7 is about Stephen. Well, this part that we're going to be in today that we dig into in chapter 8 is really about Philip. And so this is a Philip week. Most of chapter 8 involves Philip. And so the, the, the chapter itself kind of revolves, kind of centers, focuses on two main narratives, two main stories about Philip. In a couple weeks, two weeks from now, March 13th, Tim is going to look at the second one. That's Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. This morning, we're going to look at the first one, which picks up in chapter 9. So that, I'm sorry, verse 9. So that's where we're going to spend kind of the bulk of our time this morning, but I don't want to neglect the first eight verses. I want to spend a little bit of time looking at this because there's some really interesting and significant stuff for us, for our hearts in that. So hopefully you're there. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. So this is what it says. And Saul approved of his execution. So talking about the execution of Stephen. Chapter 7 ends with Saul looking on, right? Saul was part at some level of the execution of the murder of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So there's the spreading out. Except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So the tragedy with Stephen creates kind of this firestorm for Christians in Jerusalem. And so all of a sudden, it's really not safe if you're a Christian. Actually, probably more specifically, if you're one of those Greek-speaking Jewish Christians, so the Hellenistic Christians, which we said is what Stephen was, and it's also what we'll see Philip is, okay? And so they were the ones that, um, so these are the ones that grew up outside of Jerusalem in areas that spoke Greek, and then at some point in their life, they kind of came into Jerusalem, Jerusalem and lived in Jerusalem. So in a sense, in some ways, they were seen as outsiders, right? And so they were seen as troublemakers through all of this stuff with Stephen. And so all of a sudden, it's not safe for them to be in Jerusalem. The Hebraic Jewish Christians, like the apostles, it seems, could stay in Jerusalem. But those other ones, the Hellenistic ones, had to begin to spread out. 
And I thought it was interesting that, that the word that Luke uses, Luke is the one who wrote the book of Acts, right? The word that Luke uses for scattered comes from a Greek word for seed. And so they were scattered, the, the early church, the Hellenistic Jewish Christians, they were scattered like one scattered seed. And what happens when you scatter seed on soil? If you've ever planted grass, I got to plant some grass this spring in my yard. You take the seed and you throw it down. And what happens? It grows, right? And that's exactly what happens in the church. Last week we talked about how God uses awful tragedies in our lives to work things together for good. And that's exactly what he did with Stephen. He takes this awful tragedy of this godly man being murdered and it spreads people out, but all of a sudden the gospel begins to grow. So what was intended to extinguish the gospel actually instead fans the flame of the gospel. By the way, it's easy to kind of read past this verse, but when it says godly men, devout men buried Stephen, that was illegal for them to do that. That was actually very dangerous to give a proper burial to a condemned criminal. You weren't allowed to do that. And so these devout men that were burying Stephen, they were risking their lives doing it. If they got caught doing it, guess what could happen to them? The same thing that happened to Stephen, right? And so not only were they devout men, but they were courageous men. And notice Saul was one of the leading persecutors of the church here. And you read that, and, and maybe he's the worst of them all. We don't know. But he's certainly one of them. He wasn't, he wasn't just reactive to things that were happening with Christianity. He was proactive, and he was determined, and he was resolute enough to go door to door, taking people that were part of the church and putting them in prison, imprisoning them. Remember, the early churches, by the way, were house churches. So when it says he went house to house, Probably it's talking about house churches to house churches, right? We're sitting in, I have a men's group that meets on Saturday mornings. We were sitting in my barn yesterday, and I, I just, this just struck me. And you know, we sit there safe. We sit here this morning safe and secure. What Saul was doing would be like coming in here and rounding up all of us and saying, because you follow Jesus, you're going to prison, right? That's what he was doing. Look back at verse 4. Now, when they were scattered, they went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So, so not only were, as they were scattered out, not only were they fulfilling what Jesus said in Acts 1, verse 8, the gospel would go out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, but they were also fulfill, fulfilling what Jesus commanded, what Jesus told his apostles, his disciples to do in, in Matthew chapter 28, right? The Great Commission. So as they go... They're preaching the gospel, right? They're preaching the gospel to all nations. So it's happening. What Jesus said would happen is happening. And sometimes it's confusing when you read some of the more common names in the Bible to know who they're talking about, right? So, so we got Philip, this Philip. So, so like James, I don't even know how many Marys there are in the Bible. There's lots of them, right? And there's, there's some different Philips too. So actually, 
I was a little confused at first when I was looking this up. I thought at first this might be Philip the Apostle, but it's not. So one of the apostles is named Philip. That's not who this is. This is, again, one of those seven men of good repute, seven godly men of good repute that were chosen in Acts chapter 6, the first part of chapter 6. So that's the Philip that we're talking about. And again, he was a Greek-speaking Jewish Christian, right? So, so Philip goes down to this Samaritan city, and we're not sure which Samaritan city it is. Some theologians think it's a place called Neapolis, which was Shechem, called Shechem in the Old Testament. Some think it was a place called Gitta. Whatever city it was, it actually doesn't, make, doesn't matter much. Luke doesn't even care to tell us what city it is. That's not the point. The point is who he was going to. He was going to the Samaritans. And if you're not too familiar with the New Testament, the Samaritans were repulsive to the Jews, right? So they were a group of people that the Jews did not like because they considered them kind of half-breeds. And so hundreds of years earlier, if you read the Old Testament, you see eventually the nation of Israel splits in two, and you have Judea in the south, Judah in the south, and then you have uh, the, the northern kingdom of Israel. And eventually the northern kingdom is conquered and the southern kingdom is then later conquered. When the northern kingdom is conquered by the Assyrians, some of the Jews, they end up letting some of the Jews stay and those ones that stayed intermarried with the Assyrians or the Canaanites or other foreign peoples that settled in the land and they became intermingled with them. And so they were, they were quasi-Jewish. They were Jewish, but they also had intermarried with the these other pagan Gentile groups, right? And so they were, to a Jew, to a full Jew, they were despicable. They were, they were kind of sellouts to them. And so as a Jew, for Philip, it was a big deal that he went down to the Samaritans. So last week we said, when we looked at Stephen, we said Stephen was the first one outside of the apostles to do miraculous signs, to do miraculous things, right? Philip is actually the second one outside of the apostles to do miraculous things. And so he heals demon-possessed uh, demon folks. He heals people with severe physical ailments like paralysis or lameness, body parts that aren't functioning properly, like undeniable miracles, right? And I want you to notice in verse 6, so I think this is really, this is really critical. In verse 6, the crowds, it says, paid attention... So it says, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip, right? When they heard him and when they saw the signs he did. So it was the message of the gospel, the message of Christ that was the focus, not the miracles. The miracles simply validated the power and the significance of the message. But the message of the gospel, the message, the good news about Jesus, that's the thing that they grabbed onto. That's the thing that was transformative for them. We'll come back to that. And it says the result is that there's much joy in the city, which I was thinking about that. We we're processing through this a little bit on Wednesday as we we're discussing the sermon. And that just sticks out to me, I think because it's a good barometer for me in my life. You know, sometimes we struggle with joy, right? Like sometimes we just get caught up in all of the stuff going on in life and, and before we know it, we're not very happy people. We're not very joyous people. And I just think it's interesting that when the Holy Spirit is doing what the Holy Spirit does, the result is joy, right? 
And so it begs the question for us to look at our lives and go, well, if I'm not experiencing joy, maybe one of two things is happening. Maybe I'm, I'm resisting the Holy Spirit, which is what Stephen said the ungodly men did last week we looked at. Maybe I'm quenching the Holy Spirit in my life. Or maybe I'm just not recognizing what the Spirit is doing, and I'm missing out on those things because I'm so focused on whatever else it is that I'm focused on. So I encourage you to think about that in your own life. Joy. Look at verse 9. But then there was a man, uh, there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they had believed, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Okay, so Simon, this Simon practiced magic. Another translation says the magic arts. Another translation says sorcery. So maybe in some of your Bibles, it might, the heading might be Simon the Sorcerer. That's how I remembered learning about him. He practiced sorcery. So these were people that claimed the ability to manipulate the impersonal forces of nature, wind, you know, sun, um, whatever, gra- gravity, all those sort of things, the impersonal forces of nature, but also the personal forces of nature, like spiritual beings, like demons, like angels, right? To do their will. So they believed that they could manipulate, they, could, they had some level of control over the impersonal and personal forces of nature to do their will. It's unclear exactly if he, if Simon had this kind of power to do these things, to actually manipulate these forces, or else maybe he was just a charlatan and he tricked people and manipulated people. We don't know for sure. I tend to think he had the ability to do this. I, I tend to think he had the ability using magic and sorcery to do some supernatural things. Regardless, he claimed to be somebody great. It makes me chuckle a little bit. He, he called himself, or they called him, maybe he, they both called him, the great power of God or the power of God that is called great. He claimed to be somebody great, and they recognized him as somebody great. I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole this week. I was just reading about this. And um, there was a group, a later group, so like, so this is, I don't know, 50-ish, somewhere around in there, um, AD. So 150, late, late second century, early third century, there's some of the writings of some of the church fathers, Justin Martyr, a guy named Irenaeus, that they reference this heretical group, this heretical Gnostic sect that traced their lineage back to this Simon, Simon of Samaria. And whether or not they actually were derived from him or else it just kind of gave them credence if they could trace their lineage back to this, you know, first century sorcerer, we don't know. But it's interesting that his reputation as this sorcerer with this power to manipulate the personal and impersonal forces of nature, a couple hundred years later, still had an effect on people. It's interesting. So when Philip comes into town preaching about Jesus, not only do many people believe, many of the crowds believe and are baptized, but even Simon himself 
believes and is baptized. And apparently he starts following Philip. He continued with Philip, it says. And you read that and you go, wow, like this is crazy. The sorcerer, even the sorcerer who could do like supernatural things, even he believes, even he is baptized, even he starts following. But notice in verse 13, what amazed him. And I think this is telling. It says that he was amazed, he was enamored by the miraculous things that Philip was able to do. Luke, Luke calls that to our attention, which I think is telling for us. Remember in verse six, we said he notes that the crowds saw the miracles and then they paid attention to the message that was said, right? It was the, it was the words, it was the message. It was the truth of the gospel that was transformative to them. It was front and center and apparently because of that, many were saved. But Simon was amazed at the miracles that were performed. And so, I mean, just like pull back and consider this. The sorcerer who claimed he had, who made a name for himself by doing supernatural things, who claimed that he could manipulate the forces of nature, he's more amazed by the supernatural things that are accompanying the message of the gospel than perhaps the gospel itself, right? We'll see what happens. Look at verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, "'Give me this power also.'" so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Let me read that, we go. Hmm. Okay, so Peter and John come down to Samaria when they hear, when they and the other apostles hear that the Samaritans had received the word of God and they were saved. I think they went down to celebrate with them. I think they went down to affirm them. I think they went down to, to be united with them and then, of course, to help them receive the Holy Spirit. By the way, this is the same John. Like, just so you feel the significance of this, of these Jewish apostles coming down to Samaria, this is the same John that just, I don't know, a few years, a couple years earlier, when they were in Samaria with Jesus and the Samaritans rejected Jesus' message, John looks at Jesus, he goes, what do you want me to do? You want me to call down fire from heaven and just destroy them all? What do you think, Jesus? Jesus is like, no, 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 right? This is the same John that just a few years earlier wanted to obliterate the Samaritans. And now he and Peter are going down there to affirm them and welcome them into the church. That's powerful. Like, that's encouraging for me. The tr you just see up close, firsthand, the transformative nature of, of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives, what Jesus does in our lives. So it's a big deal that these Jewish apostles go down to Samaria to see what God has done with these new Samaritan believers. And I think it's important to acknowledge that this is a transitional period 
um, in the church. And so this wasn't the normative experience of how people typically received the Holy Spirit. Usually, and you see this more and more as the New Testament unfolds, especially as the book of Acts unfolds, and then later you read the epistles, normally it was more close, the receiving of the Holy Spirit was more closely connected with conversion and baptism. In fact, in the very next chapter, that we'll look at chapter 9, you see this with Paul. Paul believes, is converted, is baptized, received the Holy Spirit. You see it in the next chapter with Cornelius, right? And so as the New Testament scriptures eventually come to the close, what's normative in terms of Christians receiving the Holy Spirit is that we receive it immediately at conversion, which is what we experience today. And you see that all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the epistles of the New Testament. It is assumed that if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, a saved follower of Jesus, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and lots of other places. And so it's kind of an assumption as the church grows. But it happened differently at this time, right? It was a different time in the church, and God poured out his spirit in a unique way with these Samaritans. As I've chewed on it a little bit, I'll give you a few reasons maybe why God chose to do it this way. Some people look at this passage, and they call it, they call it the Samaritan Pentecost, so if you remember when we were in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit for the first time is poured out on the Jews, and there's like a mighty wind, and there's these tongues of fire that rest on people. It's, it's this big deal, right? And so similar, similarly, as the Holy Spirit is poured out on this new people group, it started with the Jews and now the Samaritans, God chooses to do it in a unique way, in a significant way the first time, Right? It also may be significant that the Holy Spirit is given to them by the laying on of two Jewish apostles' hands, right? Like they put their hands on these Samaritans who typically up to this point they would have despised. And so it's kind of a sign of their full inheritance in the kingdom of God and their full acceptance into the church. Or perhaps it was done to kind of expose Simon's sinfulness and teach generations in the church to come, like us, what true, saving, transforming belief looks like, which we'll talk about here shortly. But whatever the reason, this is how God chose to pour out his Holy Spirit on the Samaritans and how he chose to expose Simon. So look back at verse 20. See the result of all this. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. So he offers to buy the, Holy, the power of the Holy Spirit to give people the Holy Spirit by putting his hands on them. Peter says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're full, that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned, they, the apostles, returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. 
So interestingly, this is the third time so far in the book of Acts that we've seen human selfishness, human greed exposed and condemned. So the first time is in chapter one with Judas and how Judas betrayed Jesus for some silver, right? And the result of that in Judas's life. The second time was in uh, Acts chapter five with Ananias and Sapphira. They sold this land. They kept back some of it and lied about that. Right? And so now we have the third time of greed being something that is despicable, that is condemned by the gospel. I think Luke wants to make it clear that, that human greed and selfishness is incompatible with the gospel. And remember, a magician claimed that he could manipulate you know, the, the impersonal and the personal forces of nature to do his will. And what does he do here when he sees the miraculous things of the Holy Spirit? Well, he, he tries to apply that same thinking to the, to the very spirit of God, right? Like he wants to have power and control over the Holy Spirit. But I would say to Simon, and I would say to you, and I would say to me, the spirit of God cannot be manipulated by the will of selfish men, right? Like we're not the ones who control the spirit. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. Instead of us controlling the Spirit, the goal for each of us is to allow the Spirit to control us, right? And that, that's how true transformation happens in our life. The more and more I lay my life down and I submit to Him and I allow the Spirit lordship in my life, which again we'll talk about here in a second, the more and more I give Him control, the more and more He changes me. Reminds me of uh, uh, John 3, 8. It says, the Spirit blows where it wills. The Spirit blows where He wills. The Spirit does not blow necessarily where I will, right? The Spirit is the one who is in control. So Peter tells him he has no part. He has no lot in this manner, meaning he has no portion, no inheritance in the promises of the gospel. Why? Well, because his heart is not right. He, he had some sort of belief in Jesus, some sort of, right? It says that in the text, but no apparent acceptance of Jesus' lordship in his life or a submission to him, right? We'll come back to that. So, so Peter tells Simon to repent and to pray that God would forgive him. And repentance, if you're not familiar with the term, all that means is a turning away from Right? We turn away from something. And so repentance is not solely a bad feeling, like I feel bad about something, I feel remorse about something. For repentance to be repentance, there has to be action to it. I'm moving away from one thing and I'm moving towards something else. For forgiveness to happen, there has to be repentance. And what he needed, what Simon needed to repent of and receive forgiveness for was what Peter calls the gall of, built of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. So some translate that first one, the gall of bitterness, that he was poisoned by bitterness. It had poisoned him. Or he was full of bitter envy. And, and the, the etymology of the word has these undertones of, yeah, you, you have this bitterness, but that bitterness comes from either idolatry or apostasy. Apostasy is just kind of a fancy word saying, I don't believe something. I don't believe in something anymore. I've walked away. I've left behind a particular set of beliefs. And so some translate the next one, the, the bond of iniquity, as chains of wickedness or a prisoner of sin. 
He looks at Simon and he says, I see that you are still a prisoner of your sin. I see that you are still bound up. You've not been set free the way that Jesus offers to set us free. You're still bound up in your sin. Your sin has a hold on you. And it's interesting that Peter tells Simon to pray, but what does Simon do? He says, Simon, pray, repent, pray, ask God for forgiveness. Simon seems terrified, right? But he doesn't go pray. At least the text doesn't tell us that. What does he do? He asks Peter to pray for him, right? Please pray that these things don't happen to me. And so you see fear in Simon. I think we see some kind of remorse in Simon, some sort of anxiety in him. But I don't know about you, but I, I don't see repentance in him, at least not here. I don't see obedience in him. What it feels like is that he's kind of more concerned for himself, right? And so I don't think he experiences a fear of the Lord, which the Bible talks about, but he's more just afraid for himself. And then that's it. Like, that's all, that's all we know about Simon. We're just not told how it turns out for him, which I assume Luke intentionally left open-ended for us. Maybe, I don't know, maybe so that we would put ourselves in Simon's shoes and consider how we would respond if we were him. We would look at our own lives and consider if we need repentance to ask God for forgiveness. All we know is that Peter and John head back to Jerusalem, and it's easy to overlook this part too, stopping along the way at other Samaritan villages. So again, they could have gone straight to Jerusalem. They could have gone right back home, but instead, I think they want to see what else God is doing among the Samaritan people and hopefully encourage them and affirm them. So that's it. That's, that's the text, right? So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to consider a little bit some takeaways for this. So again, like every time we read the scriptures, it's really good to dig in and pull things out and understand the context and all that stuff. But boy, we miss it if then at the end we don't pull back and go, okay, so what difference does this make for me today? Like, how does this change the way that I live? How am I going to live differently because of what this says? It wasn't just written for people 2,000 years ago. It was written for you and me today as well. So I have, I have three of them, and, I'll, and the first two will take longer than the, than the third one. Here's the first one. There are lots of counterfeits, but the true power of the gospel proves all others to be woefully inferior. I'll explain that. There are lots of counterfeits, but the true power of the gospel proves all others to be woefully inferior. Let me, let me explain this with, with a story. Years ago, I used to work at uh, CVS Pharmacy. Anybody else ever work at CVS Pharmacy in here? No one, come on, retail. I loved it, I loved working there. Because, you know, it was like you got to see all kinds of people. I worked in Stowe. You got to see all kinds of people coming in. And it was always really busy. There was always stuff to do, so big time go by quickly. Um, you always got first dibs on, like, the end-of-season clearance stuff, which is wonderful. I still have, like, Christmas china that I bought for, like, $5 that we still use today. Anyway, I remember um, when somebody paid with a $20 bill or larger... You, you had like a marker. So maybe if, like if you worked at McDonald's, you experienced it too. You had like this, this special marker at the register and you're supposed to put a little, a little slash on the $20 bill or the $50 bill or the $100 bill to see if it's real or if it's counterfeit, right? Like I think if it was real, it was like black. If it was 
counterfeit, it was you know, some other gold or something like that, some other color with it. And sometimes we would get counterfeit bills in there. Yeah. And, and it was really interesting. Like counterfeit bills always amazed me because they look so much like the real thing. Like, especially if you're just looking at it on its own. Sometimes the colors maybe just a little bit off. Usually the thing that was the most telling was the feel of it, right? Like money, regular money is, is a, a very unique paper that's not used for anything else, so sometimes the feel. But the greatest way that you could tell a counterfeit from the real thing was to put a counterfeit next to the real thing, right? Like when you look at the real thing next to the counterfeit, it becomes obvious that one of them is not the same. One of them is not real, it's not the real thing. And if a counterfeit, if you discover a bill is counterfeit, no matter what it says in writing on the face of the bill, how much is that bill worth? Zero, right? It's worth zilch. And, and you know, I think that's what the Samaritan people who had previously followed Simon and thought he was a big deal, realized, and maybe to a certain degree, Simon himself realized, the power of Jesus Christ is different, right? Like when, when Simon is doing his little magic things, and then the power and message of the gospel is brought in by Philip, you go, oh, now that's real. That's life-changing. That's eternity change. That's absolutely transforming. It became terribly obvious when Simon stood next to the real power of Jesus Christ that one was real and one was counterfeit. And so Simon claimed to be powerful. He claimed to be a big deal. But I, I look at Simon as like a counterfeit $100 bill, right? And so you have a counterfeit $100 bill and you go, well, this seems like it's worth something to me right here, Right? You know, you claim to have some worth. Do you know what the largest bill ever printed by the U.S. for circulation is? Do you know how much it was? Did you say 1000 10000 $10,000, right? If you know who's on it, don't Google it. If you know who's on it, I'll buy you, like, lunch right now. Do you know who it is? Salmon Salmon P. Chase. You just learned something today, right? You know who he is? Nope, I didn't either. I had no idea who he was. Not a president of the United States. He was actually, he was the, the Secretary of Treasury for Lincoln, 1861 to 1864. You go, oh, okay, okay, okay. Chase Bank, it actually, it came, he wasn't ever a part of it, but they, they kind of took his name in honor of him. Listen, if Simon was like a, a counterfeit $100 bill, Jesus is like the real $10,000 bill. Like they thought they had something in their counterfeit 100 until they experienced the real 10,000, the real power of Jesus Christ. And so my question to you is this, like what kind of counterfeits are you tempted to settle for today? Like think about your own life. Think about things that maybe claim to be great, that maybe claim to seem to be valuable. That you're tempted to look at and go, well, that is pretty great. That's pretty valuable. That maybe distract you, and before you know it, you've turned away from the real power. You've turned away from the one who actually is valuable, who actually is transforming. Your answer to that question looks different than mine. 
But our world is filled with all kinds of counterfeits, all kinds of things that promise joy and happiness and meaning and purpose and peace. What are those things for you? They're nothing compared to the real power of Jesus, right? How about this one? Here's my, here's my second one. I hope, I hope, oh good, he changed it. Thank you, Steve, for changing it. I, I, I miswrote this. Here it is. Believing facts about Jesus is not biblical faith. I also must humbly repent, submit, and follow. Humbly, respectfully, I would say, I think this is the main purpose of this passage. Let me say it again. Believing facts about Jesus is not biblical faith. I also must humbly repent, submit, and follow. Listen, even the demons believe, right? James tells us that in James 2. Many, many of the demons that Jesus exorcised, not exorcised, exorcised, the ones that he pulled out of people, what did they do when he pulled them out of people? They immediately recognized that he was the son of God. Many times he quieted them so they didn't say it out loud. Like in some sense, they believed in him, but of course they certainly weren't saved. That's, that's not biblical faith. I shared last week that like my prayers in late high school and college you know, I get down at the side of my bed, usually after a night of doing the wrong thing, and I would sit there and I would pray. I, I believed that God was real, but I would pray to him, God, I'm just not ready to follow you yet. I'm having too much fun doing the things I'm doing. I know I shouldn't be. I would look back at that time and I'd go, I don't think I was a Christian during that time. Like, I, I believed in Jesus but I certainly hadn't submitted to him or placed my trust in him. I definitely wasn't following him. Biblical faith is different. Like, think of it this way. I believe George Washington lived about 250 years ago. Like, I believe it. I never met him. I've read about him. I believe that he had a big part in founding our country. I believe he was our first president. I really have faith that he lived 250 years ago. But you know what? Respectfully, I would say that makes pretty much no difference in my life today. As much as I love living in this great country that he had a part in establishing, my belief in him has no effect on my day-to-day -day life, right? My belief in George Washington, it doesn't affect, it certainly doesn't make me American, right? I just believe that he existed. And sometimes we can look at biblical faith the same way where we go, well, I just, I, I believe, that's enough. I believe Jesus existed, and then I do whatever it is in my life that I want to do. Guys, listen, that is, that is not biblical faith in the New Testament. Biblical faith involves believing that Jesus is who he says he is, but it's also placing my trust in him. It's also humbly repenting of my sin. It's also submitting my life to him and saying, you're in control. I'm not in control anymore. And it's saying, I choose to follow you. Whatever it is I was following before, I choose to follow you. That's biblical faith. There's, there's a fundamental change to us. James 2 talks about this too. Faith and works. There's this connection between faith and works. It's not just this head knowledge. It's not just this, this set of beliefs that I have about Jesus. It's choosing to make him my Lord. It's choosing to lay my life down and saying, now I know what truth, what is real what is transformative, what is life-changing. I'm gonna turn away from whatever it was that I'm following, and you better believe I am following this because there's life here. He changes us, right? He makes us different. 
It is a lie of the devil in our culture. We, we, we think that Christianity, if you imagine like a pie chart, right? You have all the different slices of what, what makes up your life. It is a lie of the devil where we go, well, what it means to be a Christian is I take my little belief in Jesus wedge, however big it is, and I just jam it in there. And, and, and the others maybe are a little bit more squished, but I got my Jesus and I'm good, right? He's a, he's a little slice of my life. That's what Christianity is, right? We would say, no, that, that's not Christianity. What genuine Christianity is, if I could continue the pie metaphor, I'm gonna make you hungry here. If I could continue the pie metaphor, like imagine an apple pie that's got crust on the sides and crust on the bottom and crust all over the top. Genuine Christianity is Jesus is the crust. He's the foundation of my life. He's the sides of my life. He's over my life. Every bite of the pie I take has crust in it because Jesus is a part of every part of my life. That's, that's genuine Christianity. That's what biblical faith does for us. It transforms us. Simon the sorcerer had some sort of belief in Jesus. I think he had a thin little sliver of Jesus that he slips into the pie of his life. But even in that, I think Simon is more concerned about what he could get out of the gospel than what the gospel would do to him. I think his focus was more on himself than it was on God and other people and how God would change him. And so the moral of the story is, don't be like Simon, right? To follow Jesus is different than just having a set of beliefs in our head. It changes us and transforms us. Let me give you my last point. It's real simple. There's hope for all of us. There's hope for all of us. Even for a guy like Simon, the sorcerer, the wicked musician. Truth is, we don't know what happened to him, right? We don't know what happened to him. It seems like Luke left it open-ended on purpose for us. It seems like he could have repented if he wanted to. At least he had the opportunity to, right? We don't know if he did or not. I hope we see him in heaven one day. We don't know. We haven't talked about Paul yet. We will soon. But spoiler alert, Paul was the ringleader of Christian persecution that Jesus grabs a hold of his heart and he makes him the greatest missionary and church planter in the history of Jesus' church. And I think, listen, if God can do that with Simon the sorcerer and God can do that with Paul and God can do that, as we'll see in a couple weeks, with the Ethiopian eunuch and God can do that with Cornelius and God can do that with a bunch of pagan Gentiles, you know what? He can do that with me. And he can do it with you too. The question is, will we let him? Will we allow him to? Will we make him the Lord of our life and follow him and live for him? It's not just about having a set of facts in our head, right? Father, that's my prayer for this morning that you would, boy, please help us in that. God, it's a lot easier to just say we believe something. It's a lot easier to know things about you than it is to know you because when we know you we're different we're changed when we recognize the real the value the power that you are everything else is just a counterfeit it's obvious how empty all the other things are 
God, help it to be that clear in each of our hearts. I think of those that might be sitting here this morning that just recognize that they've been pursuing counterfeits in their life. I pray as we sing this last song, you grab a hold of them. God, show them the hope they have in you, the love they have in you, the acceptance they have in you. May today be the day that changes every other day for the rest of their lives. So thank you, Father. Thank you for your goodness to us. And we love you in Christ's name. Amen.